Right, Dr. Kuntz, political theology is important, but really, how are we not going to talk about Argentina for the whole hour today? <laughs> the reason that we're not going to talk about Argentina for the whole hour is because we have seen the circus before. And if you have any knowledge of what's going on in, say, Germany with Alternative for Germany party or with the promises that were made by Giorgia Maloney in Italy and then how she hasn't delivered on those and has instead perhaps even ramped up immigration. The idea that some somebody's going to get elected, deliver on his promises, and that the wilder the number and ferocity of memes are, the, the bigger the results. I, th- I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, my voice is dripping with skepticism. And I think it's entirely historically justified skepticism about what Javier Merle will be allowed, will be capable of achieving. And the, you know, rebuttals to that, right? So l- let's just talk about his religious views. Javier Merle, I believe, converted to Judaism, which is kind of random in and of itself. And I don't know his biography, so I don't know if that's like his wife is Jewish and he converted or whatever. But I do know Catholics are are placing, traditionalist Catholics are placing some weight on how the people surrounding him are on that side of Roman Catholicism. That doesn't mean a whole lot practically in terms of actual political change. So there's a difference here between what is, what, what, what either seems to be in the sense that we've used it sometimes pejoratively talking about trads, what seems to be conservative or what seems to be traditional versus what might actually be like, so the person might actually have very traditional convictions about marriage. There's a difference between that and the capacity actually to affect change through those things. And because, and this is probably most accessible for most listeners, is that you want to talk to people who worked in the Trump administration. And if you can talk to them, they probably were fairly low down in that administration. There's a difference between having the right ideas, saying the right stuff on TV. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that it's unreal, right? We want to return to this idea that politics is not fake, but it's theater. And there's a difference between theater and unreality, right? It's not unreal in the sense that unicorns aren't real. It's unreal or it is it is a stage that shows you things, but it shows you quite little, right? It doesn't show you how the production is occurring or why that particular show is being run that particular week. So if you think about politics that way as theater, and we don't mean the the act of governance here, we mean the act of getting elected, saying the right things, all the stuff that Millet has already done and all the stuff that Trump is very good at, right? Go look at what happened with the Trump administration and find some very nitty-gritty article about the Trump administration's relationship to the Department of Defense or something like that. You're going to find that there's a difference between memeing and talking and governing, obvious, right? Because there was no capacity that Trump brought with him to govern in and through Washington it sort of didn't matter what he said about the southern border. And in a way, it doesn't matter what he's saying about our southern border right now or what Miele might say about was effectively Argentina's northern border. 
or lots of things, right? And it's not it's not that I like object and I don't I don't know enough about Melee to say, here are the five things that I don't like that he says. I don't know enough about it. I, I know the style, I know some of the talking points. It sort of doesn't matter because governance and talking are not the same thing. We have plenty of talkers. We don't have a lot of people engaged in governance. That would take a lot longer, right? So it would have taken a lot longer if, if somebody had said, let's run Donald Trump in 2016. So it's 2002 right now. So we're going to do the work of trying to put people with conviction that America should be relatively disengaged from most of the world into think tanks and the small number of people in the foreign service who are not left wing and, and stuff like that, right? And you, and you set that all up. So now when he comes in, he's not dealing with a totally hostile foreign service or he's not dealing with a totally hostile Department of Defense. Of all things, you would think that that would, for a Republican president, that would be easy. But in fact, he was dealing with a hostile Department of Defense. So it didn't really matter that, that you know, he says the right things about something where you have a, a single you have a single decision maker about something, right? Like it ultimately still is the American president's decision whether or not we go to war, right? And so did did Trump keep us out of Syria, for example? Yeah, maybe he did, right? Or the Obama administration tried to keep us from, I think, from a war with Iran. That, that was good, right? But where you have most day-to-day -day realities are not single points of a single decision maker, right? Like a functional world does not run on a particular decision by Caesar. Then it matters a lot whether Caesar has any friends and yes. whether those friends are capable. And with someone like Millet or someone like Trump, even where you think, yeah, I think this guy sincerely believes like whatever, 70% of what he says, right? You, you need all of those friends, not to speak of people who are even more theatrical, like Meloni in Italy, where she said all kinds of, you know, good stuff. If you're on the right, it doesn't matter because she's totally beholden to other people when she actually begins to govern. So Caesar's power is network and network is story believed by others in the real world, which is certainly distinct from the voting populace's agreement with your show. So you end up winning the show for a moment, but in the actual battlefield now, you can't fight alone. I, and the, it, the one thing that I, my, my question about this guy though, seriously, is like, how's he not dead? I mean, he's out there in the middle of these crowds. And then your your connection to you know Zionism as a political theology. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that about the guy. So, it, but go go for it. I I I, I want to. I, I disagree with the idea that that the network is is story believed by others because, and I think this is this is actually really important. Is that we have begun to define all power and all leadership in Caesarist terms. And by that, I mean the ideology that you get as the republic is decaying into the empire that one man will sweep all before him. And the difficulty there is that even if he has great capacities and is not assassinated, 
that will not actually be an enduring form of regime. That's the that's when we say that something is a banana republic, and and Americans have increasingly begun to say this about America. We we're 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 being lazy in some regard, but we're definitely not thinking about why is it like that, and it's because not just you know <laughs> the history of the United Fruit Company, right? One of the one of the great Yankee constructions of the late nineteenth century, along with the railroad companies, but it's because those are governments defined not by law, but by the idea that one man will fix things. And I'm not saying this like we're going to go back or something. There's a sense in which I, I don't believe that the United States is actually capable of returning to government by law because governments are reflective of the people, not who necessarily consent to them. So I'm saying this also about monarchies and oligarchies and, and forms of government that are less ostensibly democratic than our own. But what you're dealing with is they are looking to one man, right? Think about the fervor for Trump. Why is that? Our elites both in the state and the church, I, I really think had a severe failure of imagination with Trump. They were censorious about things Trump said and things Trump did. What's really a lot more significant for the future is for you to ask yourself, why do people give such allegiance to one man? Because when something is falling apart and Rome before Julius Caesar's ascendancy and then assassination really is falling apart as a polity, it will have to reconstitute as essentially a completely different state once the empire shifts from being a term about how Romans rule to being a term about the personal rule of an emperor. And we're in a similar state. And I don't know if we're going to survive as a polity or if it'll be a polity, but it'll morph into something else yet again. But the issue is people are going to seek one guy. That's not only getting rid of the idea that really has not been done with any success ever in an Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-Saxon derived country, which is what do we do without the rule of law, right? <laughs> the monarchy hasn't been absolute in an Anglo-Saxon country really ever, if you want to go back and look. So even if you have a monarchy, it's not going to work. You're not going to be the czar. Set that aside. I think the issue is I'm not looking in other people for them to line up with all the things that I'm putting forth. And and that also affects, honestly, the way that, that I am speaking myself, not a hypothetical first person singular, in the way that I do things, because I don't want utter assent to everything that I say. It doesn't matter because what I'm looking for in other people is capacity. Capacity, not only that they agree with me on certain things, especially where it might be my own like particularity, like this is the way I would prefer to express things or, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't think that matters quite as much. And I think that talking about it, like all of that ascent matters is a, is a function of how latent and deep a kind of Caesarism is in us now because we see so much weakness around us. We're like, well, I just want somebody to fix it. Right. And when that someone fixes it, the problem when that's dependent on him is that it begins to 
decay rapidly after after his demise, his assassination, his death, whatever, right? And a, and a really good study of this we did how many years ago is this now would be and this is this is kind of related to Argentina in the way that things that happen in Britain are related to America is you can look at Francisco Franco's record. So he keeps his country from becoming communist. He dies. His country essentially changes into like perhaps the most left-wing polity on the continent of Europe within a matter of years. Function like almost almost overnight. And that that is a function of the way that Caesarism operates, which is it's good as long as there is a guy. The problem is human beings just don't produce the same amounts of strength, conviction, charisma. I mean, all the different traits that you would want to find in a leader of any kind, even if it's like your boss, right? I wish my boss were more winning when he asked me to do things, whatever, right? Because you can't produce that time after time after time after time. You have to have something, whether it's a law of dynastic succession or it's a rule of law or a constitution or whatever it is that you're looking for that's going to keep the polity focused. We don't have that right now. And Argentina doesn't have that right now. So it's like, okay, let's say that Millet is everything that every you know enraged 25-year-old in Argentina wants out of a government. And we understand why he's enraged. It's not going to happen. And if it does happen, it's going to go away too soon. So this reminds me a lot of it conversation we had on Saturday night in which I felt I was maybe overplaying my hand at a, at a couple points with a guy who was a little younger and having a lot of hope in the governance by law of something. We'll leave it at that. Yeah. But the, the same thing is here. And so I think, I mean, you said a lot of good stuff. I could comment for an hour. The notion that the United States of America is not capable of a return to law period, I think is probably such a left turn for 95% of the average Pusidian American, let alone Lutheran, that we should spend a little more time on that. Like why? Okay. Like how can you make such a bold claim? I agree completely, but how can you make such a bold claim? Okay. It's a, it's a reflection of something that we've, something that we've been doing both on the Monday show with drawing parallels between the late 60s and the early 70s and today, which in almost everything from crime rates to political talking points to <laughs> to uh, easing into stagflation, we're, we're getting to. But it's also a reflection on a longer trend. And this is based on observations we've been making for years on the show, which is that we're we're dealing with a situation that is a government of men and not of laws. And it was a hallmark of really all government in English-derived societies that it was governed by law and not by men. And that wasn't a piece of naivete. And it wasn't, this vastly predates the US Constitution, okay? So this isn't like, well, the Constitution's gonna save us. You know, Here comes Glenn Beck once again to remind us about the Constitution. This is that this is the idea that men must be subordinate to law because law does or ought and therefore must reflect God's will. That's the idea. 
That's the idea behind natural right and premising your written constitution, if you have one, on the dictates of natural right, that your natural rights precede, okay, because they are divinely given, not because they existed in a Lockean state of nature and are kind of like fake, but because they are given by God, you have a right to life, for example, and then rights that follow with that, including the right to defend that life, the right of self-defense, and that a government should reflect that, whether it, whatever its form of governing is, which is going to have a lot to do with how many people there are and, and how related to each other they are and whether there are different religious confessions and all kinds of stuff like that. But that's the basic idea, okay? And nobody actually disputes that in English history and therefore also in American history until and unless he's trying to institute something that's usually called tyranny but I'm calling from a different political context, largely a Latin political context, Caesarism, meaning government will not be by laws, government will be instead by men and their particular whims, okay? If you're gonna do that, that is going to be extremely fragile because whims change and men die, that's why. That's, that's why it doesn't last or that's why you have more political instability in a Latin country not just in Central or South America, but also in Southern Europe, than you do in a country that has a more settled form of governance. Okay. And that's 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 not really a function just of, you know, populations and their histories. It's also a function of structure. They're not they're not set up for stability because stability will give you the freedom that people had to say that they don't know or care a whole lot about politics, which is actually sort of natural for most of the population. And we've talked about that before. The reason that I think that about the United States is that what ha has happened in the United States, certainly since the 1960s and 70s, is it, two different things. One is much more widely known, and it's, it's what I think people reflexively react against when they're talking about things being woke or critical race theory or diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, mandates and discussion in the church as well as in the state. And that is a that's a government of men. That is, you're not preferred because you're capable or because you would be good at this job. You are preferred because you are the right race or the right sex or the right gender, <laughs> right? Whatever the class is, right? And so that's where the multiplication of protected classes is very important to our regime because it gives them clients, uh, new sets of clients. So, you know, transgender people are a new set of clients. But the, the purpose there is that your fitness to do the job will, it do, doesn't matter a whole lot. The fact that you are from the right political class and therefore can receive, but then also once you're in a position to do so, dole out patronage is really what matters about you. That's really what matters. And obviously there are going to be favored classes and disfavored classes, right? And this is where we've talked about the progressive stack that maybe debuted most publicly at Occupy Wall Street, which was a ancient history now, but it was there. So you can look that up if you're relatively new to the podcast, progressive stack, and see how that functions and who gets to talk first. There's a sense in which that is a that is a little bit more theatrical than the other way that I mean government by men and not by law. 
because all of that simply leads to dysfunction. So that's that's there 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 might be people sincere about that. They actually believe if we have enough, you know, disabled veteran black lesbians as air traffic controllers, then America will be a better place. That's 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 one thing. The the other thing that is not generally so well known by most of the population and is definitely not a talking point. So there's no, you know, moms for liberty equivalent for talking about this is that government by men means essentially something that you will notice if you follow the biography of any functionary. And this is what was called the deep state. But I, I, the reason I don't like that term is I think it, it mystifies something that's not actually that mystified, which is go find some functionary at the Brookings Institution or go talk to somebody who is a consultant for a defense contractor and look at their biography. Like, and this could be a completely average person in in terms of this world who's making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and has a sort of a standard, you know, colonial house in McLean, Virginia. That what what has that person been asked to do? Well, what that person has been asked to do, there is a certain amount of competence required to be there, maybe, probably, right? Depending on whether they actually make something at that defense contractor or whether they're just, you know, they had to, they had to pass typing. typing yeah. Pass. <laughs> Maybe they're a pure lobbyist. I don't know. Hi marks. Yeah. But, but the issue there is you, okay. You, you find out what's going on with that person is that that person's life is not subordinated because it, it, it can't have been for him to have gotten there in life. It can't have been subordinated to the, protection of the laws that we do have, right? To uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Because the nature of the regime is 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 casino-like. It is it is it, it it does not have the function of being a guardian anymore. So if you look at traditional statues, which are coming down in many places. I mean, even General Sherman might come down in Manhattan, right? The reason that those statues look the way they do is because you're recognizing that that person, particularly with military figures, has sacrificed something for laws or the in our particular case, the Constitution of the United States or the Union or the Republic or whatever, and has put that sacrifice ahead of personal advantage, you will notice that that's not actually the nature of what we're about anymore. So you have on a collective level, you have patronage, you have protected classes, you have you know diverse applicants are, are in, encouraged to apply, right? And all of these codes, racial, sexual, et cetera, all of these codes for patronage, but the patronage is doled out in and through individual human beings who are not devoted to the preservation of what actually makes this regime possible. So this is where you have to put together your understanding of how we are financing any of this, which is precarious, how, in fact, we are holding onto power, which is also quite often precarious, what we are doing with the population that that 
power, those power structures, financial and political, are aiming to serve, and that population is in, is dying increasingly early, as well as all of the folks that we're inviting in from all over the world at this point at an incredible rate, usually through the southern border, to somehow participate in this, right? Like it's easier to get into the casino than ever. All of that, and it with its precariousness, is is in the nature of a government by men, right? And and it's just whim after whim after whim after whim. So that that's that's why I find it difficult to come back from this. I mean, one way that I have begun to think about America, not the United States of America as a as a polity, but this space called America, as well as lots of other places, but this works in America in a way that it doesn't in say France. <laughs> is that it's basically just reverting to Indian country. From from my perspective, it's reverting to Indian country. And what I mean by that is it's either it's either ungoverned with the hazards and opportunities that that offers, or it's governed by a by a generally hostile power, right? And those hostile powers are not necessarily, you know, aligned with each other. So there are all kinds of examples and I would, we could maybe do this sometime, but a lot of it would just be military history, which is an interest, but not of interest to everybody. But you can find all kinds of examples of, you know, this Indian tribe aligned with the U.S. cavalry and they fought against this other Indian tribe. So Indian country doesn't mean monolithic opposition. And I think that's important for people to understand is that maybe in a smaller country like Argentina, but probably not, and certainly not in a very large country like the United States, we're not dealing with monolithic opposition. I mean, that's <laughs> if you learned anything from Israel versus Hamas as reflected in American media, hopefully you learned that. Right? <laughs> like this is not, this is not, I mean, the people who want you to go fight in a, in a foreign country for their own purposes don't agree with each other, even if they both agree that they'd rather live in the United States than in Israel or Palestine, <laughs> right? But the opposition is not monolithic. You know, the, the Crow don't agree with the, you know, the Sioux about what needs to happen. So Indian country indicates a general hostility, but it also has a general opportunity, but it's, it's, it's definitely not a place run by laws. <laughs> like that's just not... That's not how it goes. And if anything, I mean, we're not we're not looking at a future that's going to be that's going to have any more substance of law to it than than anything that anybody faced in you know Montana in the 1880s. I think if anything, it's going to be less honorable, right? And it will probably have a pretense of law because that's the nature of our decaying polity, right? There are our 91 counts against the former president on which he's been indicted, right? 91, right? So it's a very specific number. Here are the specific counts. There's 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 going to be plenty of pretense of law, but it if it were a government of law and not of men, for example, we wouldn't be in the position of saying, "Oh, well we're we're just indicting our former president." Like we we wouldn't be here. It wouldn't be happening. If anything it reminds me of ancient Rome, it's the uh, staying in office to avoid getting sued. It uh, <laughs> brought about a, a lot of the downfall over time, or at least the reason individuals would fight so hard. 
But that aside, I got just a couple of throwaway comments. Yeah, and I want no, to go for it. In a different direction. But the, and I don't know his last name even really, Javier. But yeah, Millet. Millet. Javier Millet. You know, the takeaway of all of this, in short, from the first question, he's on TV with a chainsaw. He's cutting out every program. He's going <laughs> to get rid of this. He's going to get rid of that. Yeah. Like, okay, so he's got to tell them to fire themselves. Okay. That's that's his job now. And he's broadcasting that to all of them, right? And telling them to be afraid. And that's all it's it's great theater, like yeah. you point out. But he must rely on them to cut themselves out. Right. Or he must do it forcibly with a sword, and then he must have others with him to do that. Again, what what he makes of it remains to be seen. When he uh or when I saw a variety of of his escapades yesterday making their way uh, around Twitter or X or whatever. One of them was him very excited about the anarcho-capitalist flag, which I guess he says is a black square with like a gold and black circle in it or something like that. Yeah, I, I think that, yeah, that's true. It, it's interesting enough, I suppose, for a flag that can't be that old, really. But so he's waving this thing around anarcho-capitalism. Here's my big reach. I mean, it sounds like number three of our political theology approach to life, anarcho-capitalism, neutrality in the government to stay out of the way. Everything will go fine. We That's where we left off last time yeah. uh, with names like Jefferson and Locke uh, and and maybe the Missouri Synod. And now to, to continue in our discussion on political theology, the science of politics and the kingdom of the church as we see them what does that mean for us we're gonna move on to point number four uh which is religion of influence or the religion influences the government sort of a a a prophet light approach to (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i i think that it's the approach for which probably most conservative christians in argentina or anywhere else hope for they don't they they want government and religion to have two distinct functions for the government to govern things that pertain to th- this life and for religion to govern things that pertain to the life of the world to come but what they think should happen is that religion can influence government without somehow being thereby institutionalized. And that is why this fourth view is going to be promoted mostly by Baptists historically, who believe in a concept of soul liberty, meaning each soul has answerability only to God for its conscience. And therefore, the soul needs to have the liberty to make that decision to reckon in that way. And so the government cannot govern or promote the governance of conscience by any one particular religion. So yes, it's like, it's like they react from the, we're just talking about this, you know, trust in man, trust in princes. And and they react to it with, I answer to no man ever, no matter whatever. And if you hint that I must answer you, pass the salt, right? No, I shall not. I have soul liberty, right? It's it's just like, I mean, I hyperbolize, but it's a hyper reaction to number three. Well, yeah. And I, I, I think it's going to be familiar if, if listeners go to this article and, and just read through it and then look up some of the names. 
This is going to be pretty familiar because of its relative weight in American history. Hmm. Now, Nacelli, I think, is honestly just fa- wrong. I mean, he's just wrong that this is what English nonconformists or separatists such as Congregationalists said. They're going to fall into some of the views to come because... America is not actually founded by people who believe in either view number three or view number four. Right. And by that, I mean the great weight of both history and population, even at 1776 or 1787, most people are going to believe in some institutionalized form of Christianity. That will be especially clear in the places that are more religiously uniform, particularly in New England, but also to some degree the South. The reason number four is familiar is because Baptists take up the mantle of evangelizing, particularly the South, but also the middle states in New England in territory that really should have belonged to the Anglicans, but they... (laughs) You know, if you if you want to see what happens to your church when you put forth no effort into evangelization and church planning, look at the Church of England and the American colonies. <laughs> like, almost everywhere you're supposed to be in charge, almost nowhere do you even exist. <laughs> and so the Baptists and then later on the Methodists slip into that that gap that's been left and and serve the population with the gospel. And that's why their ideas about the separation of church and state, but also the the church's freedom in a very, I think, familiar Jerry Falwell moral majority, second Bush administration, George W. Bush being very public about being, of all things, a United Methodist. All of that is very familiar to us because it is Christian influence without Christian institutions in the government or authorized by the government, but Christianity being sort of everywhere. And this is, you know, this is generally what people are asking for when like that football coach, and I, I think that was Washington State, they're just asking to, you know, pray publicly before a high school football game. They're really they're asking for number four. Like it's fine. And this is what number four is probably going to seem most reasonable to most people especially most Christians in America, if you just sort of say it out loud, is it fine if the high school football team prays over the PA system before the game? Most people, most of the time, most places are going to say, yeah, that's fine. No big deal. You know, can we sing hymns in the public school Christmas program? Most people, most of the time, most places, that's fine. No problem. That's great. Right. But the problem with number four is that it's, it's just inherently unstable and it assumes that the government is kind of neutral slash open to being influenced. <laughs> Whereas right. the, the government is not guaranteed to be guaranteed to be any such thing, <laughs> you know? And, right, so it's, it's yeah. an extension of number three again, where the government it is, is just a yeah, neutral it is. idea. And can I just insert here too, then what we have in number four is a belief that the, the church and state exist as separate things. wherein church is neutral and the distinction is so great that there is no state in the church the church has no state itself and right. so as yes. you point out again from the start of this rule of men will dominate over rule of word really rule of law in such a place 
I think it's I think it's extremely hard to preserve anything like number four, especially that the two the two let's say spheres are completely distinct and only one influences the other and it influences it in a positive way. And the easiest way to see this, and we can we can kind of slide into five in this way, view five, which is what Nacelli says is a lot of what is called quote Christian nationalism today, but is in fact the general Protestant view at the Reformation. I mean, really without distinction of confession, Anglican, Lutheran, Reformed, Presbyterian, those are different historically. This is the standard one, and that is that government and religion are distinct but they are not actually separated because they overlap particularly in the area of things subject to natural law and because the government needs to know and and is in fact whether it knows or not it, that it is accountable to the living god therefore it has some responsibility that overlaps with the church as the church has responsibility let's say regarding people's marriages and adultery and stuff like that that overlaps with things in which all governments everywhere are always interested that is who do you live with and who are your children and how are they being educated so there's a distinction here but not a separation the view that we just talked about which Nicellius is number 4 is not going to be classified by most people as quote christian nationalism although who knows what is going to get classified as christian nationalism it it seems to be most often a term of abuse or fear or you know derogation and then some people wear it proudly as a label so it's honestly hard for me to tell what it's supposed to mean what the reformers historically put forth in view number five is that the reason that the government has an interest in religion and promoting specific forms of religion particularly the christian church or even a particular confession of the christian church and you see this all over the book of concord for example right like go look up all the little towns and mayors and stuff who sign various documents why are they signing that because they're not just saying that yeah we these are the churches we like <laughs> right in the way that like a politician in alabama might let everybody know that this is the church that he goes to, you know, outside of Montgomery. Right. I'm particularly proud of the Margrave of Brandenburg myself. Right. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm just really in a Margraves generally. Like, yeah, you know, I, I, my, I, I'm with you, man. That's what it is. <laughs> hey, can I, can I jump in again with yeah, uh, go so for it, yeah. number four then that the religion influences the state, right. Or in, and this again is going to be painted as the prophetic position. Yeah. When when it isn't quite, because I think I'm I'm summarizing here. The moment I can only influence the people, my influence diminishes into a permanent diminishing return. So if I am the the prophet of God and all I've got is influence, and I tell you that, like all, honestly, I I I kind of speak for God. You should listen sometimes. <laughs> like now you're just going to be heard less because those who did listen will listen for a while, but those who don't will maximize their power and will gradually eradicate your religion because it's in the way 
of their religion. And so this is where then number five, again, in the Reformation, at least enacted this, certainly wrote about this, but our dogmatics heretically or uh, heritage wise don't don't necessarily reflect this, I don't think, right? But that that tr- the government to be good must promote true religion. It, it yeah. has to, even if it's wrong, like it has to. <laughs> if it doesn't, things get really bad. They do. And I, I think sometimes Lutherans and Roman Catholics get confused. Lutherans, you know, honestly, in my experience, have some of the same, I don't know, just ignorance that Roman Catholics do. So you ask a Roman Catholic to distinguish between different forms of Protestant churches and they they just can't. And Lutherans will refer to everything that is neither Roman Catholic nor Lutheran as quote reformed. It it makes it hard for people to understand Lutherans and Roman Catholics that America has historically functioned somewhat along the lines of view number four. But honestly, if you just pick a couple of examples very clearly along the lines of view number five, because most Americans did not see the denominational or confessional differences between Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians as really affecting the public order. So they had their own solutions to what do you do about those confessional differences? But whether you're going to allow Quakers to be in colonial New England or not, which early on they didn't, and then later they did, it didn't mean that a kind of general Protestant Christianity wasn't effectively the way that things worked. And I don't just mean in terms of influence. I mean in terms of the way that positions were argued for forbidding the circulation of information about contraception through the mails in Anthony Comstock's efforts. That's that's like a really great answer. I was just going to say, like, everybody more or less told their kids not to have sex before marriage. Like, everyone just kind of said that, right? No one didn't say that. No one said, don't do it. Go, go, go do the other thing, right? And it, and it, it wasn't, it wasn't just, it wasn't a function of, you know, a campaign or something. Well, yeah, it wasn't a campaign and things that, made it hard to live and to prosper while also being a single mother were baked into the law and to, into the enforcement of those laws. Similarly, if you can go back, go back to the civil war and there, there's a, there's a one book that you can get that will help you see these things fairly clearly is that you get Mark Knoll's book about the civil war as a theological crisis. What you're going to see there is everybody on all sides, because America is an overwhelmingly Protestant not and non-Lutheran and certainly non-Roman Catholic country at that time, is that everybody who's arguing is arguing on the basis of this is what the government should do because this is what is just, and here is how justice is defined by the Bible. So the point there isn't, do you think it was just to advocate for immediate emancipation without compensation to slaveholders? Or do you think it was just to continue a regime of slaveholding, but you didn't want to extend it into the West? You wanted to keep it in the South, whatever. You'll notice everybody's arguing along the same lines. That's part of why it was a theological crisis and part of why it was a, it was a crisis of the Bible or about the Bible, because everyone is arguing along these sort of classical Protestant lines that government and religion 
are distinct. They're not the same thing, but they overlap so much that we can't really talk about what the government should do without talking about what God says in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. So that so that Lincoln, whether you like him or hate him, you know, we we're gonna respond to him Thursday as we record. Uh, because he, as the president said, I set aside this day for you to call on your God. Do it. Do it, please. And tell him thank you for the blessings he's given the land. You can go find it, look it up. I'm I'm paraphrasing, yeah. but like like that was the assumed mentality. Yeah. And how I mean, far how far we've come, indeed. It, it's it's the idea behind Thanksgiving during the Civil War, Thanksgiving as a local custom. Before then, Thanksgiving at Jamestown, which is sometimes claimed to be the first Thanksgiving. That's kind of a Virginia versus Massachusetts rivalry thing. We don't need to you know, adjudicate that right now. But the idea that yeah, the we, government we would- that for the NCAA uh, March Madness playoffs. <laughs> <laughs> that the government would, would institute a day of Thanksgiving is not, and it's interesting. I mean, there are pastors that just don't want to work on Thanksgiving. That's fine. Just say it. Or you don't care that much about Thanksgiving. It doesn't, mm. it feels like Labor Day to you. Just say it. That's fine. The The reason that people didn't think of it as, quote, not a church festival was because they didn't think that the government and the church were completely separated. Yeah. That's why. Yeah, they didn't that. live in completely different spheres and it wasn't really possible to do so. So when I think about things like marriage, if I'm saying, okay, marriage is going to be the prerogative of the state now, totally without input from the church, um, without accountability announced that this that the that the state has to God. I mean, just look at Psalm two, for example. If that's if that's how it's going to be, then what's going to happen is the government will just increasingly pursue its own prerogatives independent of the fact that it's accountable to God. And I would prefer a situation in which aligned with the reformers, but aligned also with you know, the my forebears in America who would always preach what are called election sermons. And that's not about the doctrine of election. That's at an election day for magistrates in New England. And you can go look at the sermons and they're all about, you know, <laughs> you're going to die and you will have to face God for the decisions that you make. <laughs> oh, ruler, right? Yeah. And there's a whole collection of those you can go find called Sermons of the American Founding Era that Liberty Fund put out several years ago now. And uh, there's stuff from the revolution, which has a, a kind of a wider array of theologies, including John Wesley explaining why he thinks the American Revolution is illegitimate. But before that, you can also get these election day sermons and you have parallels in all Protestant countries because Protestants recognize that government and religion are distinct. Some of the views that maybe we'll get to today, maybe we won't, no big deal, that are going to be more common in medieval Catholicism, where the religion sort of overrules or runs the government. Protestants didn't think that. There was, there was a distinction between church and state. There was not, however, a separation. And I think it's, it's unfortunate, but this is just the way, you know, political discourse goes, that this, that this, common reformation view gets derided as christian nationalism or something and therefore it's crazy and we have to stop it or something like that you know and it's like this is just basically what luther said and this is what's in the book of concord yeah and, I, and i'm with it and i'll take it even further and suggest in some ways it means the whole conversation is a moot point but we can leave that for when we close it up for which will be next time uh, for now i do want to ask this so how does yeah. Malay get his hair to do that i i i cannot fathom it 
I thought Trump had it locked, right? Like he had the hair that no one ever could possibly. But then malaise is like it comes around the side, around the ear somehow, and then underneath it's like a it's like a horn from some I do you know what I'm talking about? I do. And I have absolutely no answer whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, okay. So from there, I don't I don't want to end our discourse on political theology today. I want to open up quite a bit more next week, I think. Sure. So I, I, yeah. I want to come back and see if we can pull these ideas into a little more of Argentinian moments in the wind of the, the meta story of great men and what that means for those of the kingdom who would rather live in a land ruled by a law. If the USA is not capable of a return to law, Dr. Koontz, what's a law-abiding Christian man to do? You would want to you would want to begin to think about where and how law could take the place of disorder and chaos, because that's that's what you're looking at in a in a government according to men's whims and wills. That's all that arbitrary means in Latin is that it's up to men's choice, right? Their their will, their desire. You want to see how you can in some way bring order to Indian country. And that is going to be, of course, extremely difficult. That is why what we are looking at in the future requires reserves of determination and, and clarity that we haven't needed in the immediate recent past. And I watched a long speech by Tucker Carlson to the place I used to work, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. I think the speech was from last month, maybe. So October of 23. And one of the things he said was that he's 54 years old. He had grown up in a very frivolous time and he didn't recognize that. It was decadent, meaning it was falling apart and it all seemed like a lot of fun. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And so you didn't you didn't really need people, you know, and it's you know, he's saying this in his kind of, you know, whatever his Tucker Carlson way. I don't I don't need to imitate, but you know, basically like it's okay to be serious about things. Sometimes sometimes there's a humorlessness, which I think is different from being serious. There's a humorlessness that our group has. Like they're not fun to be around. And that <laughs> the reason that that matters is that people don't want to follow grim reapers. They might want a grim reaper to come in and, you know, slay their enemies, but you're not going to build a whole lot by being by being completely lacking in charisma or interest or calm. So there is a certain kind of a man that will be able to lead men in such a future who needs to be serious about what he's doing, but I think not to take himself so seriously, which is obviously where the pendulum's going to swing. So if if your parents were frivolous, you're probably going to overcorrect to be too serious, over serious in a way that will cause you to be, to feel that you are right in everything that you're doing, but to be incapable of convincing anybody else. Because people don't follow just on a, you know, sheer logic. They don't listen to sheer logic. Logic is part of it, 
also the way that you say it and how you say it and whether you say it in an interesting manner or in a manner that makes them feel like they're understood as you're saying things to them or whatever you're doing. That matters a lot. So in order to bring in more order, you you need a different kind of a man than we have recently been producing. And we therefore also ourselves have to become different kinds of men than perhaps in our own lives we have heretofore been because we we didn't need to be serious. We didn't need to lead others. We didn't need to have much concern for their welfare because things, I think we thought they were at least, were taking care of themselves, right? Like the world just sort of ran on its own momentum. But it's not a perpetual motion machine. There is no such thing. And so you need people who are going to set things in motion, especially things that because of the situation we described, are going to need very long time horizons. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to see too much order perhaps in my own lifetime. That That's why we've used the metaphor, at least of the frontier before, because the first generation that settles the frontier is usually not a generation that is going to see immense order, comfort, or prosperity in its own lifetime. And if you know that it's not, I, I don't, it's, it's not like a big letdown. Like I don't, I don't sit around thinking to myself, man, I wish I had been a boomer so I could have lots of personal wealth. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't like whatever, you know, like get over yourself. It doesn't matter that much. But if you know that that's probably the way it's going to be, then you can, I think, prepare better for the future rather than I think holding on to the past in a way that's that's usually kind of unproductive because it doesn't it's not it's just not it's not coming back. It's not coming back. Like we're not going to th- this is sort of the farce, but people know it, right? This is the farce of Republican debates right now. So how many I mean how many people are still in the Republican race, right? I don't even know. I think Tim Scott is done. Does anybody even know who Tim Scott is? Nobody's watching these debates. Right. And the, the the night where where they ran um, the the Carlson interview with Trump directly up against the debates, the Carlson interview with Trump got way more viewers. Right. People are people are voting with their eyeballs in this way that they know it doesn't matter. So if the Republican Party, this is just one very small example in the whole scheme of things, if the Republican Party is going to kind of try to go back to 2005 or something there. People know it can't happen. It's not, it's not going to happen. It's not, we're not doing that. It's, it, it can't. So if I know that's going on, then I can prepare for a future where I think we really just have to become different people. We can't, we can't be the kinds of people and therefore can't obviously live the kinds of lives and have exactly the kinds of institutions that we did 20 years ago because we can't, we're not living in 20 years ago. We don't have a lot of continuity between then and now. So men ruled by law are going to be inherently different than men who are ruled by men. And as fun falls apart around us uh, to avoid the, the, we mentioned it earlier a couple of times, the the knee jerk of overcorrection. Luther talks about the, the drunk man on the horse, right? About to fall off, pulling himself back up to the other side. How do you stay centered how do you stay calm? Right. How do you 
remember that today is given to be jovial, really, right? And I think that's kind of it's my way of reframing what we were saying, Adam, that yeah. I'm here to speak not to scare, right? But encourage, which doesn't have to be humor, but but can be. But there's then there's this charisma that is there, uh, which is the, the antecedent to or the opposite of the the Grim Reaper uh, that you mentioned. All of that, you know, I can maybe take into a more direct proverbial thought or maxim, yeah. which I I pull from. I think maybe you gave me this as a as a takeaway two and a half years ago. I didn't have it written down. I remember it though. It's that valuable to me that men do not follow principles. Men follow men who are following principles. And and the way that that works out is that the rare man who is driven by his principles when they are true leaves in his wake such an obvious good path that others will follow him. And they don't have to understand what he understands, but they do understand that he does. And they love that about him. Now he's going to understand then the law. He will say, it's not about me. It's not that you, that I am great. Is that I right. follow yeah, what is right. true? Right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. And that this is the kingdom. Hello. When we we got it, it's for you. You go ahead and close us today. The idea that you you have to quibble over everything and debate everything and nail everything down misunderstands the way that that human beings operate and that they don't have to understand absolutely everything that is going on. Nor does the leader claim need to claim that he understands everything going on, but that simply there is an adherence to God and to his word, to his law. And that adherence is firm and provides accountability, whatever the structure may be, that is actually enduring. Because what we're looking at, and the reason that I'm skeptical about Millet, is that when we build governments of men, they're always so precarious. I mean, they always, they just, they evaporate before people's eyes or their hopes evaporate as they realize that, you know, this isn't actually going to work like we thought it would, but that when we build states, nations, churches, whatever we're building, whatever institutions around God and his law, his teaching, his revelation, then we are dealing with something that's actually enduring. And then we can found it and then move from there without having leaders to whom we are captive while they're alive and whose ability to help us immediately goes away after they die. Adventure is not the pursuit of comfort. And I too am skeptical of Malay, but I think his hair is proof positive that it doesn't matter what you look like. It's what you do. If you're listening to A Brief History of Power, you know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. 
but our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.